One day, a man was driving along a four-lane highway in a small city in Oregon and missed a traffic signal. A few months later, the district attorney put out a statement regarding the opinion of the Oregon courts. It said, quote, Mere inadvertence, brief inattention, or errors in judgment, now to paraphrase, have been found to not be good enough reasons to charge someone with running a red light and killing three children, all under the age of nine, and critically injuring their mother, unquote. On that February day, the traffic signal failed to adequately warn the driver of the car that he needed to take action and stop. The investigation revealed that the man was not under the influence of any intoxicants. He wasn't speeding. He wasn't texting or on the phone. Wasn't distracted by any activity or sleepy. And he didn't have any medical issues. The sun wasn't in his eyes, and the traffic signal was functioning as designed. In his humanness, the driver just missed the signal. I can only imagine how much he regrets doing so. The world is full of signs and signals that provide information, make recommendations, signal warnings, or tell us what to do. When you see a sign, generally you have a decision to make and you can either take action or ignore it. Some people look for signs to help guide them through life. But one thing about that, there's this saying, several people in history have been attributed with saying it. It's, quote, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are, unquote. Well, whoever first said it, these words are words to listen to when one's looking for signs in their life. One who looks through the lens of hating their job may look at it as a sign if they find their car battery dead in the morning that they shouldn't go to work that day. Another person who loves their job, and yeah, I, I guess that happens, when they discover their battery is dead in the morning, they'll look at it that same event as a sign that they should replace their battery. How can we know if we're really being given a sign or not? If I have to ask that question, the answer I always go back to is that it probably wasn't a sign. God is not a poor communicator. God installed signs into his creation. We all pick up on things in nature when there's changes in the air. God made it so that communication from one person to another is primarily, they say 93%, made up of nonverbal cues and signals. Failure to recognize signals in creation especially where it involves the interpersonal relationships, can result in all sorts of calamity. God provided many signs that we can read about in the Bible. They established the authority of His Son and the prophets. Unlike a stoplight, they can't be missed. However, in cases like Moses and Pharaoh, those signs were still often ignored. People's lives are full of signs pointing the way to God. The heavens, for example, declare who He is. All of His wondrous creation stands as a complex sign pointing the way to the Creator. God puts people and situations in our lives that serve as signs pointing to the reality of who He is and what we need to do to have a relationship with Him. Yet, just like Pharaoh, people choose to ignore the signs. No one will miss the signal indicating the return of Jesus to this earth. There need be no confusion about what it will look like. It will not be subtle or quiet. However, the final sign God provides will be different. 
God's unmistakable signal, which indicates his son's return, will mean two different things to two different groups of people. If you're a follower of Christ, when the earth starts to violently shake, and you see the sun and moon go dark, and the stars appear to fall from the sky, it means the wait for your rescue is over. It means you're about to be given an immortal body and go into the presence of and be accepted by the Almighty God. If you're not elect of God and dependent on Jesus, and you see that same sign in the sun, moon, and stars, it means you've ignored all previous signs and waited too long to take action. It means you're appointed to suffer the wrath of God. Any action taken must be taken before this final signal occurs and not after. To one group, the sign means congratulations. To the other group, it means you've waited too long. That being said, it is true that those who call on the name of Jesus and believe, even in that late hour, will be saved. My prayer is that there are many procrastinators that God will call to do just that. In the last podcast, we looked at how several passages of Scripture document the future prophetic event of the sun going black, the moon also not giving its light or turning blood red, the stars appearing to fall from the sky, and the entire earth being shaken, shaken to a point where it changes every bit of geography. A face value read of those events sounds dramatic, ominous, and awe-inspiring to say the least. In this podcast, we'll look deeper into this final sign. We'll attempt to arrive at a conclusion as to the form of this sign. This will be based on what the Bible has to say, rather than what Hollywood or what the latest alarmist or pop Christian book or set of tweets has tried to sell as possible truth. The sign in the sun, moon, and stars that accompany a worldwide earthquake sound like they'll work together to be an unmistakable sign that the Lord's return is imminent. However, on the surface, Scripture appears to be silent as to exactly what causes the sun to go black, the moon to turn red, and the stars appear to fall from the sky. It's also silent as to what extent these things occur. Further, there's little, if any, information as to the timing and sequence of these events. Because of this, I'm forced to admit that my belief that this sign will be unmistakable is based on logic and not a quote from a biblical prophet. So, it's a worthy issue to look a little closer at. Let's first look at the moon losing its light and turning red. On the explain it away by natural phenomenon end of the spectrum, we know that a natural phenomenon known as a lunar eclipse can result in a moon that appears to be red in color. During a full eclipse of the moon, the earth lies directly between the sun and the moon. The earth blocks the sunlight from the moon, thereby causing the moon to, quote, lose its light, unquote, just like the Bible says. What we see going across the face of the moon is the earth's shadow. When the moon is centered in the earth's shadow, the sun's light passes around the earth in earth's atmosphere. If the earth had no atmosphere, the moon would just appear black when the sun's light was blocked from it. As light bends around the earth in the atmosphere, all the light except that of the red portion of the light spectrum is filtered out. This is due to a scientific principle known as the Rayleigh scattering. The light from the red portion of the spectrum is cast on the moon, causing it appear red to humans here on planet Earth. 
The amount of dust in the atmosphere dictates the intensity of this phenomenon. So years where there is volcanic activity, the red moon during lunar eclipses is the most pronounced. Now, there's a rare eclipse known as a tetrad. A tetrad is when you have four total lunar eclipses only six months apart from each other without any partial eclipses in between. That's a pretty specific series of events. There was a tetrad that was completed as recently as September of 2015. The first lunar eclipse in that tetrad took place April 2014. The second was on October 8, 2014. It was while I was in Hell's Canyon National Recreation Area hunting for deer. Remember, the moon was so bright that night, everyone said you could read by its light. The next two full eclipses took place on April 4, 2015 and September 28, 2015. Because of this most recent tetrad and what's occurred in regard to Israel during the past three tetrads, pastor and author John Hagee wrote a book called Four Blood Moons. A blood moon is the name that Pastor Hagee gives the tetrad phenomenon. Several other authors also wrote books on the subject. Quoting Luke 21 regarding the same sign of the sun, moon, and stars we're concerned with here, the Amazon.com advertisement for Four Blood Moons clearly attempts to imply that the 2014 and 15 tetrad possibly played an important part in that sign. The moon turning blood red is a specific sign that is revealed in conjunction with other signs. Remember the sun going black, stars appearing to fall, and a great earthquake. As we've seen in the Olivet Discourse, that astrophenomenon will take place after the Antichrist is revealed. On its own, without the other components of the final sign, I'm not sure why a tetrad would be significant at all. According to Hagee, though, tetrads have taken place in the past during significant times in Israel's history. The Bible does clearly tell us that heavenly bodies will serve as signs and to mark days, years, and seasons. You can see Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. There have been eight tetrads since the first century, and only three out of four lunar eclipses during the most recent tetrad were visible in Israel. That's where Jesus was speaking. We do know a specific detail from Scripture that does give a full lunar eclipse a possible measure of merit. Revelation chapter 6 verse 12 says that the full or whole moon in some translations appeared to turn blood red. This is from Revelation chapter 6 verse 12. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and beheld there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Well, this verse indicates that the entire moon, not a partial or crescent moon, appears to turn red in the sky. We can assume from this that this sign will take place during a full moon as viewed from Israel. The Hebrew calendar is based on cycles of the moon. The moon is full in the middle of the Hebrew month. If the moon is full, as stated in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, when it appears to turn to blood, this sign will indeed take place in the middle of one of the Hebrew months. Is Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, talking about a natural phenomenon, such as the Rayleigh scattering during a full lunar eclipse? My logic tells me that something which happens on a regular and predictable basis 
would not serve as much of a sign by itself. How many times has there been a red moon in the sky, explainable by natural phenomenon, and Jesus has not returned? By itself, a red moon seems pretty to look at, but too easy to miss to serve as a sign. It's possible that one day a full lunar eclipse may serve as one of the components of the final signal that Jesus is returning. Whether or not this most recent tetrad serves to signal any significant future events that are about to take place, it should not be confused with the specific sign that immediately precedes the coming of Jesus. To tie the events spoken of in the Olivet Discourse to the most recent tetrad was a misuse of Scripture. Now, around six years after the tetrad and eight years after Hagee's book, I'm pretty sure it had nothing to do with the return of Jesus. Not that it had anything to do with John Hagee making a couple of bucks off his book. Well, how about the sun? Within every 24-hour period, unless you live close to the North or South Pole during the summer months, the sun appears to go dark and disappears from the sky as the Earth rotates every 24 hours. Additionally, the sun occasionally goes black during a solar eclipse when the moon moves between the Earth and the sun. I witnessed my first total eclipse of the sun while sitting on a hill in the middle of nowhere outside of John Day, Oregon, in August of 2017. That was a very cool experience. I can totally see how if you didn't know what was going on, you'd think there was something supernatural happening. Living in Oregon, sometimes the clouds cover the sun for days and you'd hardly know it was there. In May of 1980, the volcanic ash from Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington totally blocked the sun as far as 930 miles away. Although not totally blocking the sun everywhere, the ash had completely encircled the globe within 15 days. The original passage of Revelation 6 in the Greek indicates that the most literal translation pertaining to the sun going dark would be, quote, The sun became black like sackcloth made of mohair. Unquote. Sackcloth was made of goat's hair and commonly worn when someone was in mourning. It was also used as a material for grain sacks. The imagery, according to the Revelation 6 passage, would be like suddenly throwing this goat hair material over the sun. The literal translation of the Matthew 24 passage would be that the sun will be darkened or obscured. The Greek word for darken is skotizo. It means to deprive of light or make dark. The root of skatizo is ska, meaning to cover. Put all this stuff together and we can say with certainty that the sun doesn't burn out. Its light is merely covered up and obscured by something. The peak of solar eclipses, when the sun is fully darkened, it only lasts for about seven minutes and there's only a swath of the earth a few degrees wide in latitude that can see the eclipse. Although a couple solar eclipses happen on the planet each year, at any point on the Earth there is a solar eclipse only about once every 300 to 375 years. If, in Jerusalem, there would be a complete solar and lunar eclipse within a short period of time of each other, they could possibly qualify as a part of the final sign. A quick check of an online eclipse calculator doesn't show any total solar eclipses up through 2024 in that region of the world, and there are only two total lunar eclipses in Israel between now and then. This is not to say that the Lord's return must take place by 2024. 
I would never say that. It's only to say that such occurrences are extremely rare. I'm not sure solar and lunar eclipses will ever occur close enough together from a Jerusalem vantage point to serve as a sign. Even if it did, there's also the matter of the stars appearing to fall from the sky and the worldwide earthquake that would also need to occur. How much of a sign would it be if Jesus was merely referring to the sunset or an eclipse when he said, quote, immediately following those days, the sun will be darkened, unquote. I don't think the following would be much of a sign if he said this. So, so, when you see the sunset in the west, as it always has done since the first day of creation, and then a lunar eclipse occurs sometime within the next few months, like they do several times a year, then know that my return will happen at any time. The logic of these regular and natural occurrences serving as a sign for the most significant event the universe will ever see just doesn't seem to flow or make sense. I don't see people becoming anxious or perplexed, as Scripture puts it, as a result of such normal and natural occurrences. Given the literal translations of the Matthew and Revelation passages pertaining to the darkening of the sun, the most likely scenario is that something covers up the sun besides the moon. Given the rareness of lunar eclipses in Jerusalem, the extremely short time period involved, and the very limited amount of geographic space affected, it's likely that something that covers up the sun is not the moon. We'd have to speculate to say what will cover up the sun. Will it be something to do with an earthquake that's also mentioned? Volcanic dust? Dust from an asteroid that hits the earth? Clouds? Something entirely supernatural? We just don't know. A final indication that we are neither looking at a sunset or an eclipse explanation of the sun being darkened is the additional language used in the Revelation chapter 6 passage. It says this, And the heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That's from chapter 6, verse 14. For the sky to appear to depart or be rolled up, as other translations put it, something is occurring that's way beyond an eclipse or sunset. Although pyroclastic flows from volcanic eruptions normally move along the ground at about 450 miles per hour, it could be something similar moving across the sky. Now what about the stars that appear to fall from the sky? Every year, as planet Earth passes through the same spots in the galaxy that it did the year before, regular, predictable meteor showers take place. This is caused by cosmic dust left from a comet's tail as it burns up in our planet's atmosphere. Every year in August, on my wife's birthday, as we all pass through the same spot we did the year before, the Perseid meteor shower takes place. This is perhaps one of the best meteor showers to view from the northern hemisphere. It produces 50 to 100 meteors per hour that can be observed streaking across the sky. There are nine such meteor showers that take place throughout the year. They are predictable because as the Earth makes its laps around the Sun, we annually pass through the same spots in the galaxy each year containing the cosmic dust. A regular meteor shower, even when one or two falling stars are observed each minute, 
doesn't seem to fit the description given in Revelation chapter 6, which says this, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casts her untimely figs, when she's shaken of a mighty wind. That's in chapter 6, verse 13. Fig trees produced two crops in Israel. The early harvest, called the bikor, forgive my pronunciation, might be bikor, was harvested in June. The second crop, called the karmus, was harvested beginning in August and continuing through the winter into March. The karmus crop of figs would be the winter fruit that John refers to. It's likely that the Apostle John, the one who recorded the revelation given to him by Jesus, used imagery that was familiar to him, such as a fig tree being blown by a winter gale-force wind. He would have likely been thinking that the reader of his letter to the seven churches in Asia would have had a good mental picture from the imagery he used. Even those living in a non-fig tree region of the world, 2,000 years after the book of Revelation was written, can still relate to this imagery. Now and then, some gale-force winds will make it in from the Oregon coast into the Willamette Valley where I live. In the fall, the beautiful multicolored leaves give up their grip on the oak ash and maple trees and fly everywhere, providing quite the spectacle. In the spring, it's the cherry and plum tree blossoms. Such winds are hard to miss. It's, I mean, it's beautiful when it happens. It normally gains my complete attention when I see it. Both Israel and the modern-day coast of Turkey, where John was living at the time he wrote the book of Revelation, actually have higher-than-average wind speeds in the summertime than the winter. However, I'm sure in John's 90-plus years on the planet, he and many others have witnessed figs flying out of the trees during especially large winter storms. I've never seen a fig tree's winter fruit get shaken loose by a strong wind, but I have witnessed modern fruit tree harvesting devices that shake trees in order to get the ripe fruit to fall. When the machine is activated, the fruit doesn't come off one piece at a time. It happens quickly and in large numbers. This is what I'd expect to see if a tree was being buffeted by a gale-force wind. I would not expect to see one or two pieces of fruit per minute falling to the ground. Likewise, based on John's description of the falling stars, I would not expect to see only one or two meteors per minute enter the Earth's atmosphere like they do during a regular meteor shower. Since there's no time frame specifically mentioned regarding these three signs, if we set logic aside, the signs could theoretically take place over a period of days, weeks, or even months. However, I don't believe this to be the case for several reasons. Here, let me list them out for you. First, the signs are mentioned in the scriptures as if they are one sign or a group of signs occurring in rapid succession. Secondly, Besides the necessity of the sun being darkened during the day and the stars appearing to fall at night, there's nothing specifically raising the possibility that the three signs take place over an extended period of time. Third, the immediate language used in Matthew 24 seems to include all three phenomena taking place immediately. You read that word immediate in Matthew 24, 29. Next, the reaction of those remaining on the earth is that of being anguished and perplexed, as if completely overwhelmed by what they are seeing. Next, Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, to lift up your head and look up, 
as if the next thing you will see is Him coming in the clouds. Finally, the upcoming language we'll see in Matthew 24 indicates that people, both believers and non-believers, are going about their normal business when Jesus suddenly returns following these signs. One thing we do know for sure from Scripture regarding the timing of these fantastic things occurring in the sky is that they follow the event of the abomination of desolation. If we would see something like these astronomical events occur before the abomination of desolation takes place, even in the form of four blood moons over a period of two years, it would only be a sign that someone may be profiting from book sales, but nothing more. It makes sense that the return of Jesus would occur immediately after this large, unmistakable, worldwide sign in the heavens. After all, Jesus said, when you see this sign take place, quote, look up, unquote. I don't believe Jesus would tell his people to do something like look up if his return were beyond the normal period of time a human being could hold such a pose and stay awake. I personally think there will be just enough time to look up before we are gathered to Jesus and see him in person. If Jesus were to delay beyond a very short period of time, my guess is that his instructions would have been more along the lines of, keep about my business. However, Jesus' command here to look up is as if to say, your work on earth is done. We know, based on Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44, that up until this sign, people will be going about their relatively normal business. This sign is a game changer. If I, being watchful, after I had witnessed the abomination of desolation taking place, and my brothers and sisters in Christ subsequently being persecuted, then I saw the sign of the sun, moon, and stars, along with a worldwide earthquake, I would not be going about my normal business any longer. I would be confidently searching the sky for my King and my Savior. We don't know when the covenant spoken of by the prophet Daniel will be confirmed by the Antichrist, so we don't know what year in the future the seven-year tribulation period will begin. Because of the sign of the abomination of desolation, those alive at that time who are watching and recognize that sign will know that they are within three and a half years of the return of Christ. However, they still won't have any way of knowing what day or hour His coming will occur. Since this sign in the sun, the moon, the stars is so closely tied to the return of Jesus, no one will know the day or hour that these signs in the heavens will occur either. Based on Scripture, we don't know for sure the location where these signs will all be seen. It makes sense that they would be viewable from the region of the world that these prophecies were all given, the Middle East specifically Jerusalem. However, it also makes sense, especially in our day and age of digital and almost instant knowledge of the news, the entire world will be aware that the signs in the heavens are occurring, at least while digital communication still exists. When such events as these take place, it's very likely that our fragile digital communication infrastructure will be damaged to the point of uselessness. Watching events on television or your smartphone after this point, like some rapture books and movies have portrayed, will be very unlikely. It's interesting that the three signs in the heavens include one that would only be evident during the day, the sun being darkened, one that could only be seen at night, 
the stars falling from the sky, and one that could be seen during either time, the moon turning red. If God uses natural phenomenon to bring about these three signs, and if the intentions of the scriptures is that these three signs will be observable from one geographic location on earth, it would mean that these three signs would have to span a period of time, at least several hours. With what I just talked about in mind, there's nothing in scripture indicating that all three signs must be observed from a single location on the earth. For example, the sun could be blotted out on one side of the earth where it's daylight hours. Whatever is blotting out the sun, like dust or ash, could cause the sign of the full moon turning red, while an especially active meteor shower takes place in the nighttime sky elsewhere on the planet. Whatever form this sign may take, God may not have it in His plan to use natural phenomenon to bring it about. He may cause all three things to appear in the same sky within a matter of seconds through supernatural means. This is, after all, the return of the Son of God, Jesus, to the planet to establish His everlasting kingdom. It'll be an event that will be worthy of the most supernatural of occurrences ever. Jesus is going to appear from nowhere, riding on the clouds of the sky in power and great glory. Is it really a stretch to think that the sign in the sun, moon, and stars may occur supernaturally? The sign coming about in a supernatural way would seem to perplex people the most and cause them the most anxiety, which scripture predicts. The final sign in the sun, moon, and stars will indicate that the return of Jesus is imminent. My hope is that this discussion of what form this final sign may take has shown you that there are several logical possible scenarios that could, in the most literal sense, fulfill the prophecies. Since we can't narrow down and be dogmatic about exactly what this prophecy will look like, should we discard it and say it can't be relied upon to provide an unmistakable sign prior to Jesus' return? Absolutely not. To review... One of the main reasons we're given prophecies like this is so we can recognize a legitimate sign after or when it happens. We're not given prophecy to make educated guesses about all the who, what, where, when, and how details beforehand. Even this sign, as unmistakable as it seems it will be, has proven to be a perfect example of this point. The important thing is that the follower of Jesus is watchful for such things, is able to recognize them once they've occurred, and is not blinded by preconceived notions of how things might play out. When this final astronomical sign occurs, what would it matter if we missed it or got what we were watching for wrong? It won't. All that will be left to do is leave this present world behind, because our blessed hope is at hand. Jesus said, when you see this sign take place, look up, for your redemption draws near. The elect of God will be gathered to Jesus, whether they observe the sign or not. As a matter of fact, they'll be gathered whether they are living or not. I imagine those followers of Jesus, who are on the earth when this sign occurs, who have somehow managed to escape the persecution of the Antichrist with their lives, and probably a little more will be very excited, relieved, and overcome with joy that they're about to be rescued by the Messiah. What a day that will be. One of the things that has always troubled me, even when I thought the pre-tribulation rapture theory was correct, 
was that life would seemingly go on as usual after tens of millions of Christians would suddenly, without explanation, vanish from the face of the earth. There have been a number of speculative theories that would explain the mass disappearances, mostly ones that Hollywood has attempted to fabricate. One explanation is that the remaining citizens of the world would demand some dynamic political figure like the Antichrist to put the world back together again. With the church out of the way, this would be more easily accomplished for such an evil person. Perhaps hundreds of millions of people would suddenly lose their loved ones. Can anyone really think that their world would just continue without them? Even the most wicked left on earth after such an event would demand answers in the aftermath for years. Remember, this pre-tribulation rapture scenario takes place secretly and suddenly, without any signs or warnings. It doesn't take place after any catastrophic event like a worldwide earthquake. People would be so freaked out by the vanishing that they would likely not be able to function. Just look at the psychological impact of COVID-19 isolation and restrictions. Can you imagine if millions of people, young and old, were to just disappear? The prophecies regarding economic collapse we find in the Bible don't even come close to the kind of economic chaos that would ensue. With millions of people suddenly disappearing and the physical damage that would take place to infrastructure around the world as a result, the world would barely function at a level that the Antichrist would need to pull off a plan. His plan. The only explanation that could possibly make sense to those that remained on the earth after the rapture is that the Christians must have been right all along about Jesus. It makes sense that there would be a great turning to God after such an event. Yet, that's not what we see occur in the Bible. People, unlike the novels, they'll say, continue to reject God. There's a much better logical fit for the timing of such an event as the rapture where millions of people would suddenly disappear. A plausible explanation that would not cause these kind of concerns among surviving inhabitants of the world. Following the midpoint of the tribulation period, just after the abomination of desolation takes place, we're told that the Antichrist will cause everyone to take his mark if they wish to buy or sell. Not taking the mark carries the death penalty. If you're a true follower of Christ or Jew at this point in the future and refuse the mark of the Antichrist, you'll either be put to death, be put in prison, or go into hiding. A few short months after the Antichrist has had an opportunity to execute his Holocaust-like plans, there will not be many Christians or Jews left on the streets or in their former homes. Just as was the case in Nazi Germany only a few decades ago, it'll again be in the future under the rule of the Antichrist. Then, with Christians and Jews already having disappeared either voluntarily or by force, add in a worldwide earthquake that will undoubtedly bury many people alive, wash them out to sea, and destroy most of the world's communication infrastructure. Information will be hard to come by. Tens or hundreds of millions of people, not just Christians, will suddenly disappear or be displaced from their homes because of this catastrophic event. Millions of nameless refugees will wander the countryside. Because of the persecution, most Christians will already be absent from people's everyday lives. 
what happened to the few Christians that remained before the worldwide earthquake and subsequent tsunamis will seem obvious to the remaining inhabitants of the earth. They perished. This scenario, as opposed to millions of people suddenly disappearing without warning or natural explanation, leaving only a pile of neatly folded clothes or ashes behind, is much more plausible. In summary, the envelope of how the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse, Joel chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 6 concerning the sun, moon, and stars will play out, is a large one. The range of what could take place within the parameters of the details recorded in Scripture include the possibility of God using natural phenomenon, or God could bring about the signs totally through supernatural means. This sign of the sun and the moon and the stars will most likely occur immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus and the church's gathering to him. Logic dictates that the sign will be recognizable apart from routine natural events that take place, such as the sun setting, or a regular annual meteor shower, or a solar and lunar eclipse. Although we don't know exactly how God will pull it off, the sign preceding the return of the Lord Jesus to this earth as its king, the coming of the day of the Lord, the outpouring of the Almighty's wrath in this earth, and the end of this world as we know it, is worthy of miraculous never-seen-before, supernatural splendor. This final sign that will take place in the heavens serves as a great reminder to the purpose of biblical prophecy of this type. It was not given to us so we can know all the details beforehand of exactly what's going to happen. It was given so that after something happens, we'll recognize it for what it was. What a relief it will be for those Christians in the future who are around to see it happen. What a dreaded thing it'll be for those who failed to heed the signs and act beforehand and come to know Jesus as their King and Savior. That will do it for now. Next time, we'll talk about fig trees and mountains, imagery Jesus used to get across his message, and what that had to do with the miracle of Israel becoming a nation again after being dispersed throughout the world for around 1,900 years. Until then, God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com, or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.